Hey everyone, welcome to the Mass Construction Show. I'm your host, Joe Kelly, and this is the podcast about all things construction in Massachusetts and beyond. Today we have Lieutenant Chris Towski from Cambridge Fire Department. Chris is a rep of the International Association of Firefighters, representing labor, and is a principal member of the NFPA 241 Technical Committee. Uh, all that's relevant because we have asked Chris to stop by. Actually, we were meeting on something else, but uh, we just asked Chris to chat quickly about what he sees coming down the pipeline for NFPA 241 in the future. Enjoy the show. Hey, Chris. Welcome to Mass Construction Show. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, thanks. Glad you'd be back. Is this two or three? Or? This is number two, I believe. Really? Okay. I feel like I snuck you in here one time before <laughs> or one time after. But um, So this is going to be just a short podcast. Um, you know, we've chatted over time in regards to, you know, what happens new with NFPA 241. Um, most people locally here in Massachusetts, we're still operating on the 2013 edition, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's correct. Um, so a lot of things have changed. We talked a bit uh, offline, uh, 2019 edition, which has uh, been published but not adopted here locally, but for the folks that are outside Massachusetts, they might be dealing with it already. Um, the big changes there were new chapters on tall wood structures, and you guys addressed cooking. Um, you're in the process now, nothing's finalized, but you're in the process of um, looking at what will be the 2022 edition, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, so what's, what's I guess, what's happening for movement in 2022? What's of interest? So what we've done, um, we've gone from a five-year document, as you recall, Originally, it was 2013 that was out. It got delayed. The 2019 came out, but technically that was still a five-year document. And now we're into the three-year cycle. So we are on target to be have the new uh, document released for 2022. We've just wrapped up in October our second draft revision process. So now where it goes, it goes to the NFPA for editing, and then it will go ultimately to the Standards Council for approval and then to publishing and then ultimately for release. So it, it, like I said, it's still on target for the 2022. Uh, what we've done drastically... Actually, can I interrupt before absolutely. you go on to that? Um, any, was there a, a logic or a reason why they wanted to go to a three-year code cycle versus five? I don't recall. Um, what I think it is, though, is I think uh, holistically that's what the NFPA is doing with all their documents. Okay. They're, they're refining them because they seemed, my opinion, from what I get out of the rather, they seem to flow better and match up better with uh, the NFPA 1. And as you know, here in Mass, the NFPA 1 follows the IBC, you know, mm -hmm. it follows that pathway. And where that's on a three-year cycle, it seems to be more all in step if everything goes into a three-year cycle. Just so everything's more coordinated. That's And to be honest, enough technology and things change enough waiting five years seems like an eternity now right like true you know true absolutely but things like you say are, are, are fast paced you know by the time you already committed to something something's already changed hmm. so yeah so but i believe that the ultimately the nfpa's vision is to have everything flow into a three-year cycle uh to, to keep things better coordinated okay so what were some of the things that stood out to you as someone who so so where we are currently with the document is that we recognize that to make it flow better, it's going through a drastic reorganization. 
uh, for what you might recall seeing, especially with stand pipes, for example. Stand pipes were in several different chapters in the prior edition. We're going to bring that into not its own chapter, but we're going to bring everything related to stand pipes essentially into one chapter. Um, currently, as you know, the way NFPA reads, you, you essentially got to go to the middle of the document, Chapter 7, to, before you can figure out who it even applies to. Well, we're pulling that up to Chapter 4 um, into those general provisions chapter, and we'll get it carved out there. So as a user, it should flow better to the reader. Yeah, th that actually makes sense because if you look at all code documents, even the IBC or whatever, application is usually the first thing discussed. Right. Right, so... You know, what does this apply to? Right. And then tr traditionally what happens with the NFPA documents is they go through the way they're structured is they have their administrative, then they have their reference adoption, Chapter 2, they have their definitions, Chapter 3, then they go into their general overview provisions of Chapter 4, and then they go into specifics as they go. Mm. Obviously a different structure than the ICC stuff, but nonetheless it has a flow pattern to it, and I think that's the holistic vision of what we've recognized as a committee to have this document flow that much better for the end user. Okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. So, so with that, uh, we you'll you'll see a substantial change with Chapter Four. Chapter Four will be quite large. Um, it's going to have a lot of general provision information in it. Uh, what we've done is we've carved out the fire prevention program manager responsibilities, and with that, we also included a definition. It's kind of a little convoluted because when you go into the definition, Chapter 3, it's essentially just going to tell you, go look at Chapter, you know, Section 4, yada, yada, yada. But it's finally defined. So people that were hung up on it before can actually see it and say, well, wait a minute, what is an FPPM? All right, it's defined here, and then this is what their responsibilities are to give it that mm. further definition, if you will. Yeah. Was it pretty broad, the definition, or the, the hope? Well, yes. It? it just currently the way it reads at least the way i read it um it just doesn't seem before it seems like there's things that a fire prevention program manager should know but it doesn't tell me who the fire prevention program manager should be now mm. with kind of tying the knot if you will it seems okay the fire prevention program manager needs to be knowledgeable of these x y and z components and what have you so i i do believe it's it's better it's an improvement yes on that side of it okay. um with that We've pulling in a new chapter. We're going to have a chapter 13. That's going to cover large wood. Uh, we've gone not back and forth, but what is really defining a large wood. What it essentially is targeting on is what we customarily have here with our podium, you know, our, our stick over podium construction. That's what it's, it's kind of focusing on. Uh, but I do believe we, you know, there'll be some numbers that are associated to it to give the end user that threshold uh, you know the trigger of what when certain things will apply and that would be more where the tall wood is obviously going to be about height large wood is going to be about square footage yeah right? be massing yeah yeah okay. exactly okay. it'll be that widespread over multiple city block and you know even how things get phased in so we that's the the where we spent a lot of not a lot of time but that's what we've done some things to improve upon um We've also added from the fire service eyes, it was important to get in what a building looks like from the outside for the fire service. In other words, what you customarily have seen here in Massachusetts, we have the X and slash posting. Those are both recognized in both the building mass amendments and the fire code mass amendments. 
um, they use a simplified version of just having, of uh, like I said, the X for interior and exterior compromise, or the slash just indicating that there's some interior compromise. What the NFPA already has established is the um, the fire building marking system. So what we've done is we've pulled that into the annex. So at least now there's reference, there's some guidance there. So for folks that are outside of Massachusetts or if Massachusetts chat, uh, you know, wants to adopt it here, uh, it, there's something there that's available. Um, what the beauty is, what this the, the system offers, is that it has different fields. Um, if you can picture uh, the standard firefighter emblem or badging, they use what's known as a, a Maltese cross. Um, and you can picture there's different fields. So that gives five different areas where information, of course, you can only put so many characters into a, an area, but abbreviations will work. And those can be identified and recognized by a local jurisdiction of whatever they use to, to pull things out. Like there's a trust system uh, or there's whatever else is going on there that's important for them to, to be able Wood to recognize. Steel, exactly. E egress. It could, yep. Uh, there could be several different things that tackle that. Fire protection, maybe, if there's any in place. Or, right. Yeah, okay. Right. So it'll be that much more versatile. But the beauty is now, at least it gets into 241, so it'll make it a globally recognized component, and we'll just see what happens here, obviously, in Massachusetts, on okay. how it gets played out. All right. And now that is going to be stationed in the annex piece, right? Right. Right. It'll have fingers pointing to it from the body of the document, mm -hmm. but the explanatory playing around with the that side of it will be in the annex to give the layman's terms on you know how to use it. Okay. So locally here in Massachusetts, we have the slash and the X indicating essentially the safety of the building. Is that a exactly? I, that's what I mentioned. That the, the X um, indicates that there's interior and exterior structural compromise. And the slash indicating, you know, it's given the eyes through the window that you can't see, letting us know that there's some interior compromise. Mm. We customarily not abuse it, but we use the X. It just seems to be standardized a lot because they do kind of go hand in hand. If you got some interior compromise, there's a good chance you get some exterior yeah. compromise. Mm. And that is our local uh, mark. This all falls under building marking, right? Right. Okay, right. so that's the local building marking. But what you're saying is there's a national standard. Correct. Uh, an NFPA standard. An NFPA standard that we don't we don't use here in Massachusetts, but um, in other parts of the country right. that gets used. And to, with that discussion going, what we predominantly use the X and slash for here have been traditionally for abandoned properties. Mm -hmm. But now pulling the marking system into buildings under construction, it helps our incident commanders see that there's, there's a potential or something else to, that for them to be aware of on the other side so they can adjust the, or work with their decision-making for fire attack and whatever mitigation they're going to do. Okay. So this would be much like that existing system, but just with more nuance because you have more areas to provide more information. Correct. Correct. And, but yet simplified. Yep. Right? So yep. you don't have to pull out and read the whole plan. If it's an emergency going on, you can show up and say, okay, what is the conditions here right. by looking at that marking system? Yep. And just to be clear for your listeners today, that's nothing that's recognized in Massachusetts yet. Yep. This is just something that's finding its way into the document that could be something that gets used in the future. Yeah. Well, I think it's important for people to hear that stuff, though, right? Because um, 
things migrate kind of slowly, right? Okay, hey, we're starting to have a conversation about this. It shows up in the annex and then eventually leaves the annex and goes into the document. So it's kind of a good way for people to understand all code, right? It's, oh, hey, in California, they adopted this. In Oregon, they adopted that. And it just means that, hey, there's a potential that comes that way. It's something you might want to take a look at, take a look at it as maybe just a best practice. Right. Exactly. I can't agree more, um, especially where you were going with that, is we know the info is coming. Let's share the info so people get prepared for things that are coming down the pike. Mm. So so with that now, so like I mentioned, we – we're, we just wrapped up our second draft revision process. That was done in October. Out of the first draft revision, there were 20 public inputs that were done from the National Fire Sprinkler Association. What they did in the second draft revision is they politely struck everything that they agreed to in the first draft and didn't like it anymore and wanted to see it go away in the second draft. They didn't do that just arbitrarily. They left it open that to discuss it further. So with that, they put together their own team of subject matter experts, if you will, and they reached back to the committee, the chair, and they asked to put a task group together. I was asked to lead that task group so not so much to be impartial, but to, to give it what it needed to help that task group get to, to where it needed to go. So what we did is we tackled these 20, and we did them, I believe, very well. Of course, I can't, I don't have every note in front of me to, to let you know how they all played out, but we, we, we tackled them pretty well. Some stuff ended up staying, some stuff got slightly tweaked, and some stuff went away and got reintroduced, perhaps in, in a different format. Along with that, there were a total of just a, just a, over 60 public comments for the second draft revision. There were 40 related to sprinklers. So the 20 that I just spoke of, we hashed out, and then we took on about 21, 22 others. So this task group did about 60% of the labor ahead of having a committee meeting to get things hashed out. Can I interrupt? Yes. These were 20 proposals from the National Fire Sprinkler Association, so presumably they were about sprinklers and either impairments or um, adding them during construction? Exactly. It, okay. it, was, it was that age-old question, if you will, of the outrage of, well, that building could have been saved if it had sprinklers and, and how that worked and how it really flowed. So essentially, in a nutshell, the way the current document reads is that it requires sprinklers to be installed with the standard. We know the standards to be NFPA 13, 13R, and 13D. However, nowhere in 13, 13R, and 13D does it cover temporary protection. So there's no installation standard to cover temporary sprinkler protection. So that's what got hashed out through these 40 public comments that mm. we had. And this is actually um, a good tie back to what we were just saying, where discussions that happen and things that get looked at might be an indicator of where things potentially go, right? Mm. And here's a plug. If you go to massconstruction.org, I wrote something about 
you know, what are essentially the hurdles to uh, installing a temporary system. You know, what are they? What are the likelihoods of getting past them? What are some people that already have gotten past them? But that conversation has started and, you know, uh, me, not you, because you're on the committee, so you don't want to be in the crystal ball, uh, you know, game. But, you know, I, I really see a place where we get to something within the standard that if it doesn't require it, at least it gives it a reasonable path for someone to install it if they wanted to. Right. And the, the essentially the punchline is is that the language tweaking that was done to a lot of those public comments pretty much took it away from installing in accordance with the standard and essentially wrote it as installing with the in accordance with the fire prevention program. So it puts a lot more emphasis on what the fire prevention program is going to mean. So, okay. so w when you say, just so everyone's clear, when you say uh, fire prevention program, you're really talking about what someone might call a 241 plan. Yes. You know, in quotes, right? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, as, as the current pathway is for that, it's it's the owner's uh, duty, responsibility to establish a fire safe construction project, and the pathway to do that is to doctrine a fire prevention program manager to do that. And with that comes the fire safety planning, um, you know, and the stuff that gets put down on paper. What we customarily know that here turns into, you know, gets gets <laughs> called out as a 241 plan. Hmm. But essentially, it's that fire safety planning that gets put down on paper. Uh, the, not the finger pointing, but like I said, the emphasis now of when it's going to be appropriate or not appropriate, or what other things can be done in lieu of, if you will will be done in accordance with that plan. So like you say, it should take a lot of the guesswork out and hopefully that will assist our locals, especially where we have so many of our sprinkler fitters that are local here that have their tie-ups with their own insurances, with their own liabilities. Hopefully now this will give them the latitude that they need to want to have that further initiative to having sprinkle protection be turned on sooner rather than later in in certain projects as they go yeah and just to help listeners i mean i, I know what you're saying but for someone that's um maybe green in this space what you're talking about especially from the insurance perspective is right now you might have an insurance company that says you know without a sign off from the fire department and the engineer with the final affidavit you can't turn that sprinkler system on because they're worried about leaks and water damage or whatever. Um, if the language changes and says, no, you can turn it on with X, Y, and Z in place, and it's not including those things that are required right now, and you have a clear code path, that gives you the ability to do it. And then looking even further down the line, once the regulation says you have to turn it on once you hit X point, then the insurance company is, says, okay, well, you know, we have to comply with the regulation, so yes, we're going to be okay with you turning it on. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Loosely speaking. Yeah, exactly. In a yeah. nutshell. Yeah. Um, backing up a little bit, I think there's some interesting bits around uh, the fact where you talked about the national standard or NFPA standard on fire department marking. Um, 
I think people would be interesting to know. There's interested to know. There's other standards are out there. The only one that comes to mind right now is the one that you've mentioned in the past to me, which is uh, fire hydrants. Right. A lot of people go around and they see uh, some communities where they have different colored hydrants. Right. Sometimes they're red and white. Sometimes they're black and yellow. And those might just be standard markings. There are town colors or whatever. But then you go to some communities and you see sometimes there's a light blue and there's an orange and a red and whatever other colors are out there. Those colors indicate, uh, what is it, gallons per minute right. or pressure or whatever? Yeah, um, gallons per minute. Gallons yeah. per minute. It, 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 it's letting you know what the available water volume volumage is with that, avail- with that hydrant. Mm. Um, I might have sent you the... Like the cut sheet, the specs, because like a black hydrant, and it and it's it's the caps and bonnet that are the standouts that get the colors. The body of the hydrant here in Cambridge, they're silver, but the body could be whatever color. It could be red if 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 when they're manufactured, they're red. But when the caps and the bonnet, the top where the operating nut is, when those get identified as let's say black, that means that there's less than 500 gallons of water available hmm. uh the next color that is red and i don't have it in it's front like of me but it's like you know thousand five hundred yeah, yeah, yeah. fifteen hundred to two thousand is the light blues mm-hmm. uh green orange what that does for us on the fire service it can help us with fire flow calculation because that's a great lead into where i was going mr kelly is how many of you viewers or listeners out there have ever got into a construction project that, let's say you were building of all wood, all combustible, how many of you have ever reached out to your jurisdictional fire service and asked them, hey, if you have a fire there, do you have what it takes to put it out? That question never arises, um, how much water it actually takes to put out, uh, especially the, the, the wood fires. So that's a good uh, area now, at least on the fire service side, when they can see that, okay, that area is being developed and those hydrants that are going in are going to be of the light blue cap and bonnet coloring that lets them know that they have maybe potentially 2,000 gallons a minute of water. So that will help them with their tactics and strategies for trying to tabulate or, or an effective fire, fire flow to extinguish the any... And that should be what? Those things are probably tested every so many years. They test to make sure they still are putting out that flow. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be jurisdictional. Uh, I know here in the city here, uh, water department, and then there's a handshake uh, that goes with the fire department, but I believe the water department does the initial piece to it, and then, like, on an annual basis, the fire department will go out because it's good for the fire service to go out because then you can see where the hydrants are or if something's been moved or Mm -hmm. if something's changed. Uh, We go out to make sure that they drain adequately, you know, for – a winter freezing or what have you. But, um, yeah, it all depends on what community, I would imagine, on who oversees that. But somewhere along the way, and if you really think into it, um, when folks know that they're going to be putting fire protection, i.e. sprinklers in, they have to do their hydraulic calculations. They're getting flows from available, it's usually close proximity, hydrants yeah. to, to, to match up to make sure that they have enough water pressure and gallons coming in to protect that building 
so somewhere along the way, maybe as we go forward, they'll have that tabulation in place for the hydrants that they're putting in. Because most projects, as you've seen, they do bring their own water supply. Water supply is covered. We cover that mm -hmm. 241. Water supply is covered through the ICCs. You know, it, it water has to generally come with the project. And hopefully folks now will have that in the back of their minds that, all right, making sure that there's adequate water, not just having water, but there's adequate water that if the hydrants are needed to be called upon for a fire department flows, that they're there to, to do that. And hopefully, you know, I think this is where we're trending is, is a nice change in the way construction projects get flowed or um, what's the word I'm looking for, Mr. Kelly? Uh, the way they get phased or what the approaches that are done. So they'll have the, all this, oh, geez, all right, well, if this has a fire, well, this, not only say this is all we lose, but if we have a fire, it's here and not getting too far ahead of ourselves as mm -hmm. customarily as most of the construction has gone. No, I mean, I think you, you bring up a good point that, like, uh, our approaches are definitely evolving from where we, just by putting 241 in place here in Massachusetts, it got people just, they, first of they were very reactive, right? And still are to a lot of sense. Okay, what do I need to get a permit? Uh, okay, I'll put this thing together. But the conversation has changed yes. and people are getting better the plans are getting better some implementations are getting better uh cambridge for instance right you guys did not mandate the uh, dry pressurized standpipe but people started using it locally and they said hey this works and next thing you know even though it's not required by the city of cambridge people are putting it in and that's a great thing right yes um so you know i think as we get better and better the plans look better um, the sites hopefully look safer. And now I realize there are a lot of people that are still not doing the right things, but um, I, I think it's a slow process. I liken it to fire stopping. I remember when I first started out, like people were throwing joint compounds around pipe and that was considered fire safing. And even building inspectors weren't really even looking at it that closely. And now fast forward 15 20 years later, and now someone doing a three-family, uh, you know, knows about a UL-rated assembly and proper fire-stopping methods, right? Yeah. And it started off in high-rises, but it kind of makes its, the information makes its way down. Um, you know, I really see a place where we start looking at um, passive fire protection during construction. There's a great picture out there where you see this horrendous fire, and it looks like a missing tooth. It was these buildings attached, and they had two firewalls. So it was just this section burnt out in the, on, you know, completely down to nothing. And then just two firewalls standing in the two other buildings on either side of it, pretty well untouched. Mm. Um, you know, so maybe that's part of our planning moving forward. So are we installing sprinkler systems early or are we putting in firewalls mm -hmm. that offer breaks and making sure that those doors are closed, right? Absolutely. Um, and that's definitely where 241 is trending. It's, it's heading in that direction. Mm. You know, as much as... Uh, the folks are, are listening and improving. We're, we're, we're recognizing that and we're doing it to improve on our end too. Awesome. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna catch you a bit off guard because I didn't ask you to touch on this. Actually, before I go there, um, any big items and notes under the, under the tall wood structures or large, large wood structures um, that people 
should know about. What are the things that got added? Is it egress? Is it standpipes? Well, essentially, what, what, what probably the most significant is with the tall wood is every available egress designed egress stair will be getting standpipes in the progression when that building goes up. Oh, okay. That's a hands down. It's definitely a trend away of what we're looking at now with the way the current language is of one, mm. you know, the minimum one. And you'll even see that as we have those discussions, what we'll see with the large wood. You'll start to see instead of just one, because no way is one going to be adequate in the first phase of the project. But by the time you get to the fifth phase, how deep that project has come to still have no standpipes. But again, that will go with the handshake with the um, the fire prevention program. But that's the most significant for the tall wood mm-hmm. on the fire protection side is that of having the, all the standpipes going together. I think the natural follow-on question there is then obviously we go from one set of code compliance stairs to two? I Yes, or however many I would imagine that going to Or, yeah, design. whatever you have, yeah. Right. If that building is being designed to have four, then it would equate into four. Okay. Yeah, because that would, because you would need the access to that standpipe. Right. And most times it's in the stairwell anyway, right? Okay. All right. So last thing is I know you're, um, you're also on 855, <laughs> NFPA 55 for energy storage. Yes. Anything newsworthy coming out of there? Uh, and I'm catching you off guard. On this yes, you, you are. But that's okay. Um, all I know right now is that we are currently in our first draft revision process of that. Um, there have been multiple uh, public inputs that have been done on that where many, many task groups have been arranged. Uh, but that's all I have right now. I think you know, there'll be a clearer or... Yeah, it will be a clearer vision once you see when, when it goes to just ahead of, you know, second revision, you'll get to see what was done. Um, again, what happens typically, it's at a, a lot of them are editorial changes, mm-hmm. you know, just changing some verbiage and some language, some, mm-hmm. some wording, what have you. Um, I think that the crux of it's still there. It's, it's still something that's needed, uh, you know. What I encourage a lot of people here is, you know, even though it's quote unquote not enforceable, to definitely pick it up and get familiar with it. Um, you know, like I say, you know, this is probably where we were five, six years ago with 241. Now's the time to get those focus for the for the people that are in the industry of the energy storage to get your eyes going on to where 855 is. Um, there'll be some significant changes that take place with the 2021 IBC, some significant 2021 with the NFPA 1, where inherently both of those are supposed to have more finger pointing to the currently version that's out there of A55, which is the 2020 mm-hmm. edition. Uh, there'll be some of that. But as far as significance and things of that nature um nothing's jumping out right just more verbiage yeah yeah it's more traditional it's more traditional first draft language stuff Mm. you know that's how we were with first draft in 241 we got to a point then all of a sudden whoop the rug got pulled out if you will and then we had all these modifications and all these things we needed to look at for second draft to fine tune it so i think that's what you'll see a lot of that stuff taking place now in the first draft revision of a55 is going that way uh, but as far as like you know is there anything significant about 
you know, new technologies, the, you know, anything out there that, no, I'm not That's catching sure. wind of any of that. But just like I said, they're out there, you yeah. know. Uh, just, just, as soon as we get off this There'll be something call today, there. there's something okay. different. Okay. You know, there's always talk, you know, I've heard it already, you know, there's always like a better mousetrap, mm-hmm. you know, a better lithium-ion or a better technology of storing the, uh, the batteries, uh, of the, the energy. Hmm. Okay. All right, that was great. I expected this to be 10 minutes, 15 minutes. We did a half hour, so uh, bonus for everybody that's listening. And, um, yeah, thanks for this impromptu uh, update. Thank you. Awesome. Take care, everyone. Mass cons, tell me what you think. Uh, do you like the direction we're going in? Uh, I think it's always insightful to hear from people <clears throat> that are part of the code writing process. It's a really great way to know what direction our industry is going. Um, so I think probably we'll be taking the next week, maybe two off because of the holidays, but I do want you to know we have some exciting stuff coming up. Uh, a couple supers are gonna take over the show shortly. They've already recorded. Uh, Stephanie Cropo of Bond Brothers and Danielle Crayford of Kilbane. So keep an eye out. I think you'll wanna listen to that. We're also gonna be talking about scheduling, Let's see what else we got on the docket. Some other good stuff, I think. Oh, yeah, um, energy. We're going to talk about uh, Consigli's move into the energy um, and wellness and sustainability space with Arch Energy. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, those are some of the things that come to mind right now, the ones we've recorded. So keep an eye out for that. And lastly, I know I'm hitting this one pretty hard, but uh, I would really like your support when it comes to the basement tribe. Uh, I know that was a long episode. You might not have been able to make your way all the way through, but um, you know that group is doing some amazing stuff for some amazing kids, and this would be a really nice way to show your support for mass construction and to help a great organization. More importantly, help a great organization. I mean, I got a little logo on it, but um, you know, n- zero of the dollars are coming to me, so it's all going to them. Uh, I'm passionate about this one. I would uh, really appreciate and sincerely recognize uh, anybody that bothers to buy a sweatshirt. And now, two short clips from Adela and Jose about what Basement Tribe means to them. Like, she's actually listening to what I'm saying. Mm. And every time I get, like, the opportunity to, like, speak what's on my mind, and and when I feel like the other person is actually listening to me, I just like, I start realizing so many things about myself and it just, it just makes me feel good. You know, the fact that somebody, somebody out there is just like, just listening to what you're saying mm. and they're taking it like serious, you know, cause I don't think that's something a kid will find every day yep. for a person to like, listen to what they're saying. I don't know. I just, I just appreciate being able to be part of something so big. Cause I, I never thought I'd do. I, I'd, I'd be around people like this. You know, I never thought that 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 I'd be communicating like this or acting like this, doing anything like this. Being around, being around positive, good people. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just a humbling, great experience to be part of this tribe. You know, and I feel like, I feel like it really, it really means something, it really does on dogs. 
Oh, man. If you want to help, head to the show notes. All my info's there, all the social media platforms. I'm also going to throw my email in because this one matters. Thanks, everyone. Bye.